as we pick up in chapter 19, uh, Jesus was just challenged prior to this. His authority was being questioned. And he spoke to the religious leaders at the time who were challenging him. Uh, and uh, he had just spoken to them in the parable called the parable of the wicked tenants. And as we pick up the text today, the scribes and the chief priests are just realizing that that parable was meant for them, that he was speaking about them. So reading at verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful for us, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven, <clears throat> there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord of God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So ends our reading for this morning. I'm just going to pray for us one more time before we dive into the text. Father, I thank you that you are with us, and because of that, we have absolutely no reason to fear. You are our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And because of that, we will not fear. 
though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Make us still and know that you are God. Be with us now. Um, Father, uh, send your spirit now to, to be with us and to help us to, uh, to see things, understand things. Help me to teach clearly with fitting emotions and passions that accord with the worth and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Uh, guard these people from error. Lord, you know that I am not a perfect man, so if I say something off or wrong or unhelpful, please protect them from that. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So there are um, two ways to ask questions. One way to ask questions, uh, it seeks to discern and to discover, and it's asked generally from a humble heart, uh, and it admits ignorance, and it desires to become wise. These type of questions, they want answers. I don't know something. I want to become wise. Please give me the answer to the following question. The other kind of question is one that seeks to deceive and to destroy it's asked not from a humble heart, but from a prideful heart. It denies ignorance, and it desires to make the other person look foolish. Being a teacher, I have been on the other end of this many times. Uh, these questions do not want answers. They don't really want an answer. They want the person that they are asking the question to, to look silly. And the terrifying thing is, I don't know if many of you have considered this, but evil and sin came into the world through a question. Satan said to Eve, did God actually say, you shall, need, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Genesis 3, verse 2. Questions have either the power to lead you to become wise through faith in Christ or foolish through unbelief in Christ. And Jesus received both types of questions. He received some honest questions, but a lot of the time he was asked questions the way that Satan asked Eve a question. And these questions come from people who aren't looking for reasons to trust Jesus, rather they're looking for reasons to distrust Jesus. And this is foolish. And so today, in this kind of scene, uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 14, excuse me, 44, you're going to see the wisdom of Christ destroy the wisdom of man. The wisdom of God in Christ will always be exalted and glorified in the end. So verse 19 the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So as um, Pastor John had said, the context of this is the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus is telling this, this parable. Uh, Pastor Mike is going to be teaching on it next Sunday because his intention was to preach it on it uh, the previous Sunday, but the weather was uh, inhibited that, prohibited that, excuse me. And the parable of the wicked tenants, 
is this story about a man who gives a vineyard to some tenants, and they're supposed to grow it and give fruit to when he sends his servants. But each time the owner of the um, vineyard sends these servants, they beat them and send them away. So then he thinks, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son. Surely they will listen to my son. And they end up killing the son. And clearly Jesus is saying, you're going to kill me. And they perceive, right, verse, 20, verse 19, they perceive that he had told this parable against them. They wanted to destroy Jesus, but they were afraid, as it says at the end of verse 19, but they feared the people. They were afraid of what the people would do since they were hanging on every one of Jesus' words. If they destroy him, these people are attached to Jesus, they love Jesus, they worship Jesus, they look to Jesus as the Redeemer, the Savior, so if they take him away, who knows what they will do to them. So the malicious intent of their hearts is rising, but malice in the heart is rarely forthright. I mean, we know this. Anytime you have a malicious intent in your heart, it never is explicit. It's subtle, it's crafty, it's hypocritical, it's tricky. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. The word pretended has the same idea of a hypocrite, a play actor. They're pretending to be a, an honest seeker when in reality they have a different Motive. And watch how pretenders speak to Jesus. Verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So I want you to notice this. These people, they, they acknowledge true things about Jesus, but not essential things. They say, yes, you teach rightly, you teach good and right things, but you don't actually teach the word of God. Friends, when Jesus speaks, he does not speak on behalf of God. It is God speaking. There's a major difference between that. Oh, we, yes, you, you teach him good things, but not the word of God. He teaches the, they acknowledge that he teaches the way of God, but not that he is the way to God. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They even affirm that he shows no partiality. You show no partiality. The word literally means receive face. So he's not affected or influenced by external show. What they don't realize, though, is that the partiality, excuse me, the impartiality of Jesus is the impartiality of God. God receives absolutely no face. He sees perfectly through all pretenses, masks, schemes, and hypocrisy. He will never be tricked or mocked. And this is, this is honestly one of the, the foolishness of man is simply blind to this. One of the great mysteries of the wickedness of the human heart is that it has the capacity to live in known and unrepentant sin, come into church on Sunday, pretend as if everything is okay, with absolutely no intention of changing 
that from the previous week. We think we can spray the cologne on the stench of our heart. And God will smell it and say, oh, you actually smell pretty nice. Never mind, you're, you're okay. And, we, and we, we may laugh at this, but, but some of you may know what I'm talking about. Friends, God will not be mocked. He will never be tricked. He receives no face. God is in Christ. He receives absolutely no face. He will, in the judgment day, you will have nothing to stand behind. He will lay all things bare and all things will come to light. But they still try anyways. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, this is a scandalous question. Because if Jesus says yes, we should pay tribute to Caesar, we should pay taxes to Caesar. If he says yes, then all the people are going to stop following him and listening to him. Because Caesar's been ruling over them brutally and harshly, so he's going to be considered a traitor because he's siding with Caesar. But if he says no, then the government's going to step in and take Jesus out because he has so many followers that they're going to do whatever he says. So if he says no, then there might be a rebellion. So it seems as if Jesus is trapped. But verse 23, I love verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness. Jesus can't be pinned down. He always sees the raging within the heart and the sharpened dagger behind the back. So how does Jesus get out of this one, right? He, he, he answers the question with one of his most famous lines. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, right? What does this mean? What does this phrase actually mean? We, we use it in movies, it's all over the culture, people say this in, in passing in conversations. What does this mean? And the key is the relationship between verses 24 and 25. So if you look back at verse 24, it says Jesus starts, before he answers the question, he says this, show me a denarius. A denarius was just a silver coin with Caesar's Caesar's image of his face on it. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. Right, So a, a denarius is, you would work a day's wage and you'd receive this denarius. And you would have to give this back to Caesar as a tax. Okay, But then he adds a strange phrase at the end, and to God the things that are God's. These two phrases are parallels. So however the first one is interpreted, the same thing applies to the second one. So render the things to Caesar's that are Caesar's. What belongs to Caesar? Whatever has his image upon it. What should go back to God? Whatever, or should I say, whoever has his image and likeness upon them. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Sure. Live in submission to the authorities and the governments. Don't give unnecessary offense. 
do that. Because it's got his image on it. It's his, so give it back to him. But know who your ultimate authority is. Give Caesar your denarius. That's fine. Here you go. Here's your denarius. But give all that you are to God. Your, the image of God is in stamped, imprinted, pressed upon every single human being on the planet. And that demonstrates his rightful ownership over every single one of us. Conclusion, give yourself back to God. Remember who your ultimate authority is. It is God. We don't just owe him a mere denarius, but we owe him our very own life. Every man and woman on the planet, and I should throw this in there too, including the unborn, have the image of God upon them and should go back to him. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Your breath, your life, your mind, your heart, your body was given to you by God and for God. And because his image is placed upon that, the only thing you should give to him is everything. You don't belong to you. I don't belong to me. My body is not my own. My mind is not my own. My heart is not my own. We don't get to do whatever we want with what we have here. It is his. He deserves our worship, our adoration, and our passion. Now, I'm not a, I'm going to just do a little parentheses here. I'm not a big politics guy, but I'm going to throw this in here. The great tragedy of the world is that people are more passionate about their problems with President Trump rather than God. I wonder if the millions of people marching in rebellion against Trump is merely a parable to the worldwide rebellion against God. The reason that people do not render what they should to Trump regardless of his clear character flaws is that we do not render all glory, honor, and power to God. We think, what about my rights? What about my stuff? What about my desires? What about God's? What about God's rights? What about God's desires? What about God's passions? This should be the supreme important value of all of our hearts. And the very fact that we take that and we place it down here and we replace it with our own rights, our own values, our own desires. And so if anybody touches them, it seems as if all hell breaks loose. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about political issues. I'm saying that the priorities are the key. But that's all I'm going to say about politics. 
Now, before we move on, I would like you to consider the implications of the word render to God. The only thing you have to render is something that was taken away. The only thing, the only way you can render yourself to God is if you were at one point taken away. The Bible is clear. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6. So we no longer submit to the gracious reign of God, but the dominion of sin and death. We are slaves to our master, sin. And friends, the wages of sin is not a denarius. It is death. Like, if you go your whole life, if you work an hourly wage, you work 40 hours, make $10 an hour, that's $400 is your wage. You go your whole life in rebellion against God, indulging in your sin. Payday is judgment day. It, that, that's payday. Payday is coming. And God will render every single person according to their works. And unless you have the works of Jesus Christ placed upon you by faith, you have much to fear. Psalm 49, 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and see the pit. Friends, you cannot pay off God. There's, in heaven, there will be no angel off to the side accepting bribes. Yo, I got, you got a 401k? Like, God hates a bribe. And let's pretend that you just happen to have lots of money. No bank account. No 401k, no endless supply of money can purchase your redemption, your salvation, your liberation from sin, and your everlasting entrance into heaven. It will never suffice. So what's the answer? It's in verse, it's in verse 15 of Psalm 49. But God will ransom my soul from the power of hell, for he will receive me. This is the gospel, essentially. Rather than God demand that you pay your taxes or die, he offers his son in your place on the cross. And that only is sufficient to purchase your salvation. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up freely for us all. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The only thing expensive enough that could render you back to God is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No wonder in verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So, the wisdom of Christ, one. The wisdom of man, zero. The next group are known as the Sadducees, right? Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny the resurrection. 
So these men are a unique Jewish sect who were uh, very high-ranking people. They were associated with the temple and had lots of political influence. They denied uh, the resurrection. They denied uh, the spiritual realm. They denied angels. They were a very strange and unique group. And so this little scenario that they come up with is like their silver bullet to kind of make Jesus look silly. Verse 28, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. You can see this for yourself. It's in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. It's called the Leverate Law. Uh, And it may sound strange to us, but in this culture, it was a profound way to honor the name of your brother. Because they hadn't had children yet, so if if the brother dies, the next brother steps in, and it would, it would carry on the name of his, of his deceased brother. Anyways. So Jesus responds to two false assumptions. The first is that marriage as it exists today will be the same in the age to come. And the second false assumption is that there is no resurrection from the dead. So we take those one at a time. So the first thing that they believed is that marriage as it exists today will be the exact same in the age to come. This is going to be a strange one, but we're going to to go through this together. (laughs) Jesus makes it plain in verse 34 that men and women marry each other in this age. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But he's also clear. We will not be married to each other in the age to come. Verse 35, in that age... They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why not? For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. I think Matthew's account gives it a little bit more succinctly. Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Before I say this other thing, I just want to say this real quick. I, I know that there are some in this church who have lost beloved family members in Christ. I just want you to take heart. The next time you see them, they're going to be like angels. The glory that will shine from their face is beyond your wildest dreams. And the joy they're experiencing now, it's enough. So I want you to let that encourage you, to give you heart. Now to the other people who are thinking, the fo- some of you might be thinking the following thing. Wait. you're saying that I'm not going to be married to my husband or wife in heaven? It kind of makes me sad, right? Um, Two things. Number one, I'm not saying it. Jesus is. Just want to put that out there. 
I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Well, that's just your interpretation. Okay, well, it looks pretty clear. Um, Now let's, number two. I'm just going to read this because I want to get this right. Do you not know that marriage in this age was created by God to mainly be a temporary parable preparing you for the future marriage between Christ and his church? Now, if you say to that, okay, yeah, I know that. But still, okay, my response then would be, Assuming that both you and your husband are or were believers, on that day that you are standing next to the man or woman you were married to, and the both of you are shining like the sun, while beholding and gazing upon the infinite riches of God's glorious grace in the face of Jesus Christ, the mighty Redeemer and King of the universe, the one who purchased your everlasting citizenship in heaven, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the one who has forever defeated Satan, sin, and hell for you and your spouse, the one in whose presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, and the one who gave you your first spouse to prepare you to stand in dazzling white robes without spot, wrinkle, or blemish before Christ, the bridegroom of heaven for whom all things exist. Do you really think that in that moment you're going to say, oh, man, Jesus, this is really nice, but I think I would, now, I I realize I'm being, and if you still, because there might be maybe one or two, and if you still say that you have a problem with it, I mean it when I say this, I would encourage you to ask God to change your view of marriage or to change your view of Christ. The most intense, I'm gonna say this slowly and carefully, the most intense delight and pleasure that can be experienced between a husband and a wife in this age will be like a raindrop compared to the ocean of delight experienced by all those those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. should also be encouraging to those of you who are single. You're really no better off. No, no, no. We who are married. (laughs) Switch. (laughs) Swap. We who are married. Shows you where my heart really is. Um, We who are married really are no better off. We're all going to Christ. We're all going to Christ. And I promise you, when you, get to, when you see Christ, when you see Christ, I guarantee you, you will not say, I love you, Jesus, but I really wish that I could have had a, a husband or a wife. And I, he's going to say, you're looking at him. And that's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. But this is not a sermon on marriage. So, 
The Sadducees' trick has no effect because it is based upon a false understanding of marriage in the afterlife. If there's no marriage between men and women in the age to come, their question doesn't even apply. Their silver bullet turns out to be a plastic bullet from Walmart with chrome paint on it. The second false assumption is that there is no resurrection from the dead. This one will be pretty short and to the point. Jesus refutes their unbelief in the resurrection by referring to a moment when Moses is talking to God with a burning bush, right? And Moses says something to, excuse me, God says something to Moses. He refers to himself as the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. He is speaking in the present tense. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. And he gives his summary point there. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. So not only are the Sadducees wrong about the marriage and the afterlife, but they have an even more fundamental misunderstanding about the resurrection from the dead. So, the wisdom of Christ, two, wisdom of man, zero. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Now the scene concludes with a counter-response by Jesus. And Jesus is going to, as Proverbs 26.5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Verse 41, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And then there's just no answer. They don't know how to answer it, right? So it was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Christ, who the Savior of Israel, would come someday from the line of David. And there's this strange moment in Psalm 110, verse 1, when David is talking to God and he says, the Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, that's the Christ. And his point is, okay, if that's the Christ, and he's going to be a son of David, how can his son be his Lord? Figure that one out. But of course we know, Luke 1, 32 to 33, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no ends. Jesus is not only the Christ, he's also God. The only way that a man descended from David to become the Christ could also be his Lord is if this Christ was also God at the same time. And this is one of the most essential teachings of Christianity, that Jesus Christ was both God and man. But the foolishness of their hearts and being wise in their own eyes will prevent them from seeing who Jesus really is. Yet because they were wise in their own eyes, they ended up crucifying him. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, 
None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But this was no surprise to God. Because it says later on in verse 19, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It was the very design of God to use the foolishness of man to exalt the wisdom of God in bringing about the crucifixion of his son. The very thing necessary to purchase and save those who have sinned against him. And then in Acts 2, 32 to 36, it talks about the same thing and it references the same text that Jesus did. This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He's reigning in heaven over all things right now in this moment that I'm speaking now. And he freely offers forgiveness. He freely offers redemption. He freely offers a good kingdom under him. So I close by saying, lay down your foolish excuses, lay down your foolish schemes, lay down your foolish tricks, lay down your craftiness for he sees right through it. Then submit to the glorious wisdom of God that used the foolishness of man to be crucified on a cross to be crowned with glory. So I'm just gonna ask a couple questions and then we'll pray. Uh, one person. Are you mocking God with your life? Are you playing games and trying to pretend with hidden sin? And as I said earlier, coming in here with cologne on, spiritually speaking, trying to Get God off of your tracks. Remember, you cannot pay God off. Caesar will hunt you down, but, he, but if you give him your denarius, he'll back off. You cannot get God off of your tracks. He will not be mocked. He sees right through it. He sees what you're doing. And he wants to change you by his grace. So lay it down. Second person, are you depending upon your own wisdom and strength? Have you grown overly confident in yourself? My question is why? 
That's going to wear you out. That's exhausting. And Christ said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So you too, lay that down. Lay that down and come to Christ. Lastly, are you an unbeliever? Would you consider yourself not a Christian? What are your excuses for continuing in your unbelief? Seriously, what are your excuses? You are no match for the wisdom of God. Lay down your arms because I promise you Christ is so much better than whatever you're holding him back for. Lay this down. He is so much better. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your beautiful wisdom. I thank you that uh, you expose our folly. Thank you for Christ that he is not able to be tricked or pinned down. That he will always stand exalted, always stand victorious. He will always stand alone. We ask that you forgive us for the ways that we have thought to be wiser than you. Maybe ways that we're continuing to do that now. We ask that you would help us to lay our excuses down and come to Christ. Enjoy him today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.